Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is God's word. As we consider this text as wise guidance for these days that we're living in, uh, we're going to explore two things this morning. The premise for why the Apostle said this, and the purpose of what, for the, outworking, uh, the outworkings of this. The premise and the purpose. And uh, before I get into that, we'll just very quickly consider what's being said here. Let our manner of life be worthy of this gospel. But, well, we know that in the Christian faith, the gospel is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It's not something that we earn. Uh, Peter spoke about that during our time of confession. By this great gift. So how is it that we live worthy of a gift? Is this a Thor's hammer situation? I mean, do we have to exemplify a certain amount of character and maturity? And then once we cross that bar, whatever that bar is, uh, we have somehow validated our salvation? No. Uh, in Christian faith, salvation is a gift. So the context for all of this is really has nothing to do with earning and absolutely everything to do with exemplifying. It is an unapologetic call to exemplify um, the goodness of God. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, in a, speaking at a youth conference in Oromocto, New Brunswick. And Oromocto is a small place, 10,000-ish residents. And of those 10,000 residents, 75% of them are military families. So you can't go anywhere without seeing a uniform. You can't get an espresso without seeing a uniform. You can't go get your groceries. I mean, you can't hardly look anywhere without being reminded of the military. I'd never thought about the Canadian military so much as the week that I was in Oromocto, New Brunswick. The context for, for this letter to the Philippians is that Paul is in prison in Rome and he's writing to Philippi and Philippi is a military town. And the church is waking up every day with constant reminders of who's in charge. They can't go a day without seeing a Roman centurion someplace. The military presence is so incredible. They are in constant reminder of who's in power. And so this call to live worthy of the gospel. This is a call for us to live in light of who is really in power. And so as we consider the, the premise of the gospel, let's, let's um, unpack this a little bit. If we're supposed to live our lives in such a way that we're reflecting the one who is truly in power, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, and if this is a gift, then uh, the premise for this is that the resurrection for, for Paul, who wrote it, it was a game changer that changed absolutely everything. The fact that he saw the resurrected Christ, the fact that he is thoroughly convinced after witnessing the resurrection that death is not final, that was a game changer that enabled him to give his life away in a radical way. And before he's 
calling the church to walk worthy of this gospel. He's, he's expressing in the, the verses leading up to this of its just unfathomable goodness. And he says he wants to honor Christ in his life and in his death. And so for, there's some kids in this service. And when we talk about honoring, what that means is to honor something means you make a big deal about it. A really big deal about it. The, the word in the Greek uh, is, uh, where is it here? Megalinthesitai. And mega means to make a mega deal, to honor God. How many of you kids have ever read a book and you're like, oh man, I've got to tell my friend about this. This is so good. Have you ever watched the movie and said, oh man, I've got to tell my friends about this. This is so good. Have you ever had a dessert someplace at a restaurant and said, oh man, I've got to tell my friends about this. This dessert is a game changer. This has changed everything. That's what it means to honor something, to make a really big deal about it, to become an evangelist for that thing that has impacted you so deeply, so richly. So Paul said, Paul is so blown away by the gospel. Yes, the forgiveness of sins. And also the implications of Christ's resurrection, that, it's, that the renewal of all things is coming. He's so blown away by this. He actually says that for him, he's writing to the Philippians, he's like, you know, whether or not I'm able to come to you, see how it says I come and see you or I'm absent, whether I can actually get out of jail and come and see you guys, or whether I die in this Roman prison, Oof, it's a tough call. It's a win-win. <laughs> That's what he says. I mean, this is how, how blown away he is by the goodness of Jesus, the implications of the resurrection. He's like, it's a win-win. And this, of course, is what thoroughly separates uh, the gospel from all world religions because the, 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 the symbol of our faith is this cross and not a ladder, as many theologians have said. Because of what Christ has done, Paul is just blown away by this. And so he goes on to say, uh, which is where we're going to sort of uh, focus for the next little while. He says, let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Manner of life. Some of your English translations say your conduct. Let your conduct um, be worthy of the gospel. And that phrase, manner of life, um, in the Greek, for, uh, by the way, for those of you who are new, the English is totally fine. Please, I, I'm not trying to convey that you need the original languages to understand the Bible. You don't. But sometimes when you go to the original languages, um, spring things out in, in, in beautiful clarity. So, manner of life. In the Greek, politioeste. Politioeste. I'll say it one more time. Politioeste. It sounded like a good Italian, even though it's Greek. If you're hearing politics in there, politioeste. That's intentional. Because to, the life that Paul is saying, is this is a very specific kind of citizenship we're supposed to walk out. We're supposed to walk out our citizenship in relation to, so whenever that word politioeste was used in other writings, whether it's, whether it's um, you know, like some of the classic writers in Greek, politioeste means you're living in congruence with the, with the state that you're in. You're abiding by those laws. You're being governed by this way of thinking. You're being governed by the thought. And so what Paul is getting at here is he's saying there's a really specific way that we're ought to sort of live our lives. And it's in a way that brings this great glory uh, to the good news of Jesus. And so as he uh, gives us this as a citizen, we relate to our citizenship in a very specific way. Knowing that the citizenship we got, we didn't earn it. It was given to us through adoption as this glorious gift. And so because it's true that the gospel is a gift... And our adoption and our citizen is, citizenship is a gift. If we're walking worthy of that gift, uh, then essentially what Paul's getting at here is that it's not merely getting at our behaviors uh, before God, 
but deeper to our identity in God. So that the way in which we're living is actually coming out of a real sense of identity, a real sense of security, a real sense of, of, of confidence. It's a humble confidence, but there's just our, we are really grounded in the implications of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can have the kind of confidence that, that Paul had as we're, as we're dealing with the day of day, day to day. This is the premise. This is what he's, um, he's getting at as he's calling us to that. So what does that citizenship um, look like? Right? When he calls us to walk worthy of it, he's not trying to crush the church. The church is already waking up with Rome everywhere. And so he's not like, hey, I know you're waking up everywhere with a reminder of who's in charge, and I, I just want to burden you even further by saying, you better get your act together. And you better live worthy of that gift you were given. He's not trying to crush the church. He's trying to liberate the church. And so when he says this, let's walk in this great congruence of our citizenship, we've got to ask ourselves, I mean, what does that actually look like to live in that sort of uh, humble reliance on God? We consider the Son of God. We consider this humble servant. We consider Jesus who uh, was giving and serving and, and, and giving his life away. The one who spoke truth to power without all kinds of venom in the way that he spoke about the power to those in power. In fact, he spoke truth to power and then he went to cross and he died for those people who were in power and while he was being crucified his heart opened up and he said forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. The ones who are in power. So what does it mean to walk out that kind of citizenship? It's tremendous. Consider the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like to be a follower of me. Here's what your citizenship looks like. The Sermon on the Mount is not given to say, here's the way in which you come into the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is, here's how you exemplify the realities of the kingdom. They're all the followers of Jesus. He says, here's what your politiospe looks like. You're a follower of me. Here's what it, the walking out of it looks like. And consider the kinds of things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That would describe our citizenship. Jesus was saying things, I'm just going to pick a few, but he said a lot of things. Like, when someone strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other cheek. Oof. In that culture, you offer the cheek. That's how you greet, you kiss. You kiss the cheek. Jesus is somebody that strikes your cheek. They insult you. They offend you. And the response should be such that they want to kiss you. And the way in which we react to the venom and the anger and the hostility and the insult, the striking of the cheek, the response is to in invite the other, offer the other cheek, to, to have this gracious sort of a response. Jesus said things in uh, Matthew 5 when we said, what does citizenship look like? Thanks, Paul, for that. Life worthy of the gospel, what does it look like? Jesus said things like, if somebody takes your shirt, give them your coat as well. Oof. Jesus said things in the Sermon on the Mount when he described what it was going to look like to follow him, to be united to him, to be empowered uh, by him. He said things like, hey guys, if somebody tells you you've got to carry their stuff for a mile, again, Jesus is getting political now. Who's in charge? Rome. Who's in charge in Philippi? Rome. And Jesus goes, hey, somebody comes up and says, I know you live right there, but you're walking a mile this way. Pick up my stuff. Jesus says, why don't you take it two miles? Oof. 
I don't like that any more than you do. But what's the premise? Why can you do that? Why could Jesus say that? What is he giving us a, a, this, this prescription? You know, Rome is large and in charge. Is he giving us a prescription for being doormats? Can you imagine if Jesus physically manifested in a pulpit today and, and instead of using things like strike on the cheek, carry it two miles, he just picked a bunch of things that the Canadian government was up to and he said, hey, guys, I know you wake up every day with constant reminders of who you think is in power, but I need to remind you, you're children of the one who is truly in power. And in fact, that gives you such a sense of incredible security. Can you imagine the reaction of Canadian churches if Jesus said, you know what, I know the government is saying do this for one mile, but I'm saying you're so secure in where the teleology of humanity is headed, you can carry it too. Wow. That's... We would be way more comfortable if Jesus had said, when, the Rome, when Rome shows up and asserts their power and says, carry this thing one mile, say to them, hey guys, I got rights. That's against the charter. Oh, they had no charter. There's no charter. There's Christians reading this all around the world with no charter. I don't like it, you don't like it, but what is Jesus getting at? What is the apostle getting at? What does polirioeste mean? My friends, it's not a prescription for being a doormat. It's, Jesus cannot be described as a doormat. This is not the, this is describing the life of someone who is so completely secure and confident and at peace. They're like, I could give my life away. You're demanding I carry this thing one mile. I'll carry it too. To no skin off my back. I know who I belong to. I do not need you to validate me. Tell me who I am. Affirm me. I don't need this culture to curate my sense of identity. And my confidence about the future. I don't, need, I don't need any of that. I know whose child I am. And, he call, and Jesus repeatedly throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount is calling us to this laying down of the life. And until grace grips our heart and the resurrection, like it did for Paul before he got here, when he said, oh, it's a win-win whether I die or I visit you guys. I mean, until the resurrection really becomes a source of comfort and strength, when you think about where this whole thing is headed, the renewal of all things, that heaven is not some ethereal spatial place we just sort of float around in, the, the renewal of the earth, the renewal of our bodies, the society that we wish we lived in that keeps evading us, until that really grips your heart and the reality of grace and the promise of the gospel, you and I will fight to the death to make sure that we're not laying our life down beyond our, you know, beyond, beyond what, what we deem as reasonably comfort. We're not going to be able to, to do this. We can't do it. But that's the political aspect. Oh, there's a new citizenship. Oh, there's a new reality. I know I'm seeing uniforms everywhere, but actually my father's in charge. Well, maybe I can relax because in the end, I know my dad's going to beat up your dad. I'm a child of the king. I can rest in the goodness of God, his provision. This is the premise of all of this. This is what he's getting at. You know, this, in Philippi, the church, hearing this for the first time, um, they already had a, 
they already had a mechanism for, for sort of thinking through ethics because there was great philosophers who taught a lot about ethics. Aristotle, uh, he's got a multi-volume book on ethics called Nicomachean Ethics. And when you kind of read through ethics, it's very logical. If you want to be a loving person, do loving things. If you want to be a person of justice, do just things. Like, it's just very logical. But what the Apostle is getting at, this is not just sort of Aristotelian if-then logic. This is gospel logic. What I mean by gospel logic is, you and I live worthy of Christ. You and I live worthy of the good news of God's grace. Not simply by saying, well, I'm um, going to walk out greater and greater generosity and selflessness so that I can be accepted by God. That would be very logical. What he's getting at is the politioeste, the, the citizenship, the manner of life, the conduct is like, it's not due in order to become, it's due because this is who you are. When we look at Jesus, he is the picture of humanity perfected. He is the picture of, uh, of the new creation personified. You and I fail at it, of course, because we're sinners, but we're united to Christ, and because we are righteous, we are increasingly now called into congruence with that. That's the citizenship. That's why there's no earning in this to only exemplifying. That's why if you were to look at the life you were actually called to and, and say, what does this manner of life mean? And then go through a whole gospel study and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and take a real deep dive into Jesus' life and say, okay, there, there's what it looks like. That's what I ought to be up to. You and I would both look in the mirror and say, oh my goodness, I'm a miserable failure. But Paul's not trying to crush the church and I'm not trying to, try, I'm not trying to crush you. The good news of all of this, of course, is that he's blown away by the implications of his union with Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the teleology of the things that are coming with the return of Christ. Jesus is this king who came not to be served, but to serve. And so where do we get the sustaining, ongoing, you know, motivating power to do all of this? Right? Where do we, where do we, where do we say, okay, well, every Monday morning I can't, there's no way I can just pull myself up on my bootstraps and do that. Any more than you can grab yourself by your own hair and pull you out of quick, yourself out of quicksand. We can't. So where's the power? And this is what Paul is saying. It's worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's going back to where the power is. The word gospel, I mean, if you're, if you're new to Christian faith or the Bible, that word gospel means good news. You know, we think of it gospel in like a religious way because you hear about it when, in, in church. But in, in the ancient world, the gospel just meant somebody was heralding good news. They were proclaiming it in the street. Good news. And news, as you know, is powerful. Think about the power news has over our psyche and our emotions and the conversations we have and the actions we take and the things that we do. The power of news. I mean, that's where Paul's going with all this. If you read Romans in chapter 1, he hits on this again. He says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the power of the news, the power of the good news. Because news has a way of changing your day-to-day, does it not? What would happen if you woke up tomorrow and in size 52 doomsday font, all the newspapers said, the, pan- the pandemic is over globally. That news would have quite a significant emotional impact, I would imagine. It could affect a lot of your conversation. I think it would affect our psyche. It would affect the things that we did. What if we woke up tomorrow and in size 52 doomsday font, all the newspapers said, Ontario's in another lockdown. That would have a significant impact on, right? I mean, news is power. It, just, it, it begins to permeate the day-to-day. 
And Paul is going back to the implications of the good news. He's going back to that well. And it is empowering a life of service and love as it will in you and I. Church, you and I have to go back to that well every day. We do it corporately on Sundays. We go back to that well. We marvel at his grace, at his love, at his forgiveness. And beyond that, the restoration and the renewal of all things, of what is coming. We don't just grit our teeth until Jesus comes back. That's not a manner of life worthy of the gospel. That's not politiospec. It's, oh, how do I live this life of generosity and grace and service? And so, which leads us to the, the, the final thing. You think about this, um, where this is all headed. I've been speaking about his premise for saying all this, and then as we kind of come to a close this morning, let's look at the purpose. Right? The purpose is not that the church becomes doormats. To give your life away is not to be a doormat. When the powers that be say go one mile and you say I'm fine with going two, that's not being a doormat. That is deeply rooted in something otherworldly, glorious, grace and trust and peace in whose life and hand you're in. And so the purpose of all of this uh, is that we we become these proclaimers of the gospel. The purpose of all this is that there's a tremendous unity in the church. Globally, but yes, here, even in Redeemer, this unity. Striving side by side and staying on mission. The purpose of all this is that we don't get distracted by the mission. We don't just get distracted at what is actually preeminent. So I don't know if you heard, but there was an election earlier this week. And, uh, you know, it came with, the results were with uh, mixed reviews, you know? Mixed reviews. Like every election in all, <laughs> of all time, mixed reviews. And uh, there's an author, his name is Arthur C. Brooks. He wrote a book called Love Your Enemies. I didn't read the book. I was reading excerpts of it from a, in an article. And he speaks about the challenge of our culture, the culture of contempt. Contempt, which is different than anger. Anger says, you know, I care about this. But contempt says, you're beneath caring about. And he was kind of provoking us to say, you know, in, the, in these election cycles, as, uh, the, as the chips fall and different uh, things occur, terms of who's uh, elected into government, he said, you know, celebrating disagreement is actually the secret sauce to democracy. Uh, we're not really that jazzed about that, but he pushes this point forward. And I bring all this sort of up because in the midst of, you know, all of the challenges that we've had uh, in trying to muscle through the pandemic together as a church, on top of that, you've got sort of the election and the political um, stresses. And we live in this time where there's less and less patience for people who don't think the same way we do. We live at a time where it's, there's less and less patience to be able to worship next to people who did not vote like you voted earlier this week, but yet to stay in unity. Tremendous pressure. And this is the purpose. The purpose is that we are standing, the purpose of the politiwesta, the purpose of the walking this out, of marveling at Christ, saying around him, is that he remains preeminent, that he becomes the, uh, the purpose for which uh, we gather and worship and muscle through these difficult things together. My friends, it's the supremacy of Christ that unites us. It's not our politics or our uh, views on how uh, the pandemic ought to be handled. It's not our socioeconomic status in this room. It's not the varying degrees of education. It's not our ethnicity, our backgrounds, and where our families are from. It's none of those things. Christ is supreme. Christ alone. And for us to stay on mission and to, and, and to walk side by side in the gospel, to be ministers, this is the purpose 
You know, we, we enjoy great rest in what Christ has done, but we're, call, we're being called to be ministers and participants in what he is doing and what through his return he will alone do. We're called to join in with that. You know, we are, um, we're not the saviors, but we're also not observers. We're these active participants in renewal. I made a t-shirt for teens years ago when I was a youth pastor, and the shirt said, change the world. And I remember one of the parents came up to me, and she very wisely said, don't you think you're putting a lot of pressure on these kids? I mean, they're in grade seven. It's like, here's the logo, change the world. And I was like, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. What we're supposed to be doing, top-down renewal, man. Get Christians at the top and just Christianify everything. It's absolutely not. It's just never happened in world history. It's never going to happen. Jesus Christ will renew all things, but we're not observers. We're active ministers, but we don't have to be crushed and burdened under a savior complex. We can't redeem the world and set it right. Jesus will do that in his return. But in the meantime, we can nudge our neighborhoods in the right direction. We can, on the ground, love our neighbor, love those who are around us, care for for each other. We can walk out loving and caring citizenship. We can do this, whether we're being thoughtful and caring, uh, you know, in friendships, being generous with our time or our finances, caring about the poor and the refugee in our city, right? Whether we're exercising ecological responsibility or exercising godly wisdom in the workplace or the classroom or the, the playground so that, you know, we're ensuring that everybody, not just those who agree with us, but that everybody is treated with respect and with dignity, as image bearers of God, right? bring change. If we see inequity and hatred, right? be, be, be voices of love in, into these things. This is all part of our walking out, the practical implications of our, of our citizenship. You know, we do this, united to the Son. We do it by the power of the Spirit. We do it to the glory of the Father. And so we do it in, you know, small ways, small but meaningful ways, until Christ the King comes and he restores all things in a total, global, and eternal way. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. Let's pray.